this is Tundiwa Gatkins and this is episode 24 of our Treasure Island Pedagogies podcast series from the Centre for Innovation in Education at the University of Liverpool, where we share our light bulb moments, teaching props and pedagogies as we cohabit our Treasure Islands, the space for contact time with students. So today I'm very happy to introduce three guests, uh, Dr. Denise Priest, Roger Saunders and Professor David Webster. And we would love to hear if you all um, please introduce yourselves by name and your role, uh, your original discipline and how you did arrive uh, into where, into the role where you are today. So let's, Denise, shall we call on you first? Okay, uh, so I am Denise Priest. I work at the University of Liverpool Management School. Uh, my department is work and organisational management. My Passion probably is um, inclusive teaching. So I really, I lead on the diversity um, slash disability um, academic support at the, at the school. And really it's probably come from, I am also neurodiverse. So I have um, uh, dyslexia, Erlen's, a little bit of ADHD. And interestingly, um, we're recording it this week. This is Neurodiversity Week. And, and as a, a more senior academic, I'm starting to realise that holding on to that mask is, is becoming quite challenging. It's quite tiring. Um, and it's just interesting that we're making space now for discussion of difference and recognising that there is a lot of difference and, and what is neurotypical to neurodiversity. So that's that's my, my slant on, on today's discussion. Thanks, Denise. What about you, Roger? Uh, my name is Roger Saunders. I work at the Business School at the Montfort University in Leicester. Uh, my current role is Associate Professor and University Teacher Fellow, and my subject areas are marketing and advertising, and uh, a long and very torturous route to get where I am. Uh, but I guess the things that I'm interested in are gamification and playful learning, um, simply because I have an interest in uh, games, both board games and card games, and also ways of engaging students within classrooms. So my subject in particular has frequently in the past tended to be quite text-based. Um, and when I first started teaching, it wasn't unusual to have a core text that you effectively taught to or taught around. Um, and even doing things like uh, using the case studies at, end, at the ends of chapters and the, the questions that were there, um, and, uh, you know, reflecting on my own experiences as a student, that was just a bit boring. Uh, so I was very fortunate in meeting a lot of people who had some very creative ideas about different ways of of, uh, of teaching. And I suddenly realised that there was a great deal of flexibility for um, identifying new and different and interesting and exciting and thought provoking and insightful uh, things that you could get students to do uh, that would hopefully make the whole experience a bit more engaging for them. Great, I'm sure we will love to hear more on those things as well, Roger. So can I pass to David now? Thank you, yeah, I'm uh, Dave Webster. I'm the Director of Education Quality Enhancement here at the University of Liverpool, and I've been in post about nine days. So I'm just getting about, just getting, you know, an old hand as this now. Um, I've spent say, the last couple of decades at least teaching um, philosophy and the study of religion um, in a variety of different contexts and institutions. Um, and uh, also during that time have done a kind of sideways step into learning and teaching work, 
partly out of, and I think um, like some of my kind of uh, fellow members in this podcast, um, partly out of accent, partly just out of sheer interest in what seemed to work and not work within the classes that I was in. Things that I thought would work failed. Thought that things that I didn't give a lot of thought to suddenly became really effective. And those are kind of rabbit holes of interest that I kind of followed up and became really intrigued with what works and what doesn't. Some of my current preoccupations are around how we can ensure greater equity and inclusion for students using process and regulation. And that actually, in many ways, these are the things that stand between students and prejudice and bias in many ways, and can outlast individual enthusiasts in terms of members of staff moving on and moving post and things. So I'm really interested in how we how we kind of hardwire better processes that better ensure equality and inclusion for our students into institutions as a whole. Um, I'm happy to talk about that, but also, um, something I think really there's something really enchanting about teaching in higher education I'm sure in other contexts as well in that you never know what's going to happen um to steal from a Greek philosopher you never teach the same class twice no matter how fixed your your um syllabus might be because students surprise you you sometimes surprise yourself and I think that is what's really exciting about kind of teaching and why I think it's something that I never really tire as you can perhaps tell of talking about with colleagues Brilliant. Lots to pick up there as well, Dave. Thank you. So let, let's uh, move on. Again, you, you identified a number of um, overlapping areas there. Let's pick up, uh, have a think about light bulb moments you had with the students. So these are moments when you felt you were getting it. And Dave, you just mentioned about the excitement of how that can happen in so various ways, even if you're teaching the same class. And Roger, you were talking about teaching for a number of years. So yeah, so let's Let's just choose one because I know you will have many based on what you just said. So what made this happen? What made this light bulb moment happen? Anyone wants to come in first? Well, I will do if nobody else is going to. Um, so uh, the thing that I identified in advance, although I, I could have picked from loads and by light bulb moment, I, I wouldn't like to think the point at which students were suddenly flooded with knowledge and understanding of a particular thing, so much as the point at which they realised that they could arrive at a conclusion that was valid based on their own experiences and learn to question things, because that's uh, one of the other difficulties, I think, that we often encounter that, you know, a student will really sit there and go, well, tell me what the answer is. And, and with the disciplines that I teach in, there frequently isn't an answer. There are a number of different. So I did a blind taste test. Um, I bought a whole load of little uh, miniature bottles of water and then went out and bought fig, uh, four big bottles of water, everything from a supermarket own brand up to the first time I did this, I bought Voss, um, which I encountered actually via a student, which comes in a tall cylindrical glass jar um, with, a, with a cap. It looks like the kind of thing that you might keep spaghetti in otherwise. Um, so the range in, in pricing, and, and we do it per litre, uh, was something like uh, three pence to, uh, I think it was about £2.50, um, which is, you know, an enormous range. Um, and then we just did a, a blind taste test. So we had, each group had four bottles and they all had their own uh, cups and the bottles were just marked ABC. Um, they tasted them and then they had to decide uh, which one they liked from, from nicest to uh, least. Um, and then also they had to decide which one they thought was most expensive. Um, and then we would compare the groups. 
see if there was any consistency. And then I would show them the actual bottles themselves and then they would be really surprised. And over the years that I've done this, uh, only once um, has the second cheapest not come out as the one that they most preferred. And quite often, the most expensive uh, water is the one that they like least. Um, and then that helps them to sort of, you know, particularly because it's water. So it's a fairly fundamental product. You know, there are certain things that you can do to it, but otherwise, you know, it's it's a pretty basic product. And they can talk about, you know, brand image, uh, quality perceptions, value perceptions, pricing strategies. And so you can pretty much hang uh, the whole of marketing, if you wanted to, around this one activity but it's a real physical, tangible, they talk to one another, they all have their own opinions based on experience, whether they like water, whether they don't like water. And so it creates a, a really quite um, dynamic and engaging environment. That sounds quite exciting for the student. And as you say, it's very immediately uh, um, in, engaging them into the various concepts that you can talk to them about. Denise and Dave, is there similar things that you, you might do in the classroom that might be similar to this? Um, if, 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 I, if I go next. So one of the things I um, teach is I teach a formal debate and I make it very clear to the students that this formal debate is exactly or as close as they will ever get to being in a workplace and presenting a set of ideas where their ideas are interrogated, questioned. There's a completely different parallel going on in, in other people around the table's views and how they need to learn to be able to debate, but with authenticity, but also with humility. And, and so, so I get them this whole set of skills that they don't realise they're developing over time and, and they have to turn up very formal, suited and booted, because it's your best self. On that day, you're working with a team, you know, and and you find over the, the the eight ten weeks they've they've become best friends. They're seeing each other in the, so they 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 do this debate, um, and it's that light bulb moment. You can see they're just like this is real. This is how it's going to be in my real job, and it's that transition. It's the transition from um, I'm. It's almost the fake it till you make it. I'm playing at this. I'm I'm, I'm in this nice safe too. Gosh, this is what it's going to really be like. And then we talk about this is, you know, you're going to be going for either you're in industry or getting a job. All of that preparation that, you know, you would not turn up for that debate without practicing, knowing your stuff. It leads to the final you're going into interview. And, and from that debate, then I get um, quite often they'll, they'll they get in touch with me on LinkedIn and they become, you know, they, they befriend you on LinkedIn. And the number of of um quick messages I've had from LinkedIn. I've got an interview. I've managed to get this person in this place. Can you just give me a bit of interview technique? Can you just check I'm all right? Um, and and it's that that buzz of they realise it's real. They, 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 they've joined the grown-up world. This is real stuff. They want to do their very best. I mean, and from me, all of a sudden, it's over this last few years, especially probably since COVID, you realise they're not the partying group of students we had five, ten years ago. These are very, very sensitive, very sincere um, young people who are quite vulnerable sometimes, who really want to do their very best. And, and for me, it turned the light bulb from teaching stuff and questioning and challenging to this is real world, these are adults and we need to respect them and give them the dignity. And so that's probably me um, in a nutshell. That's why I'm perhaps so passionate about debates uh, in, mm. in university settings. So can I just explore, you mentioned authenticity. 
what can you just expand on that a bit yeah, so, so Tun, quite often, if you give a student a presentation, um, they present one view. This is the worldview. This is accepted. In a debate, they have to sit back and think, there's lots of, of alternative realities going on here. I have to follow my own judgment, my own belief set. I have to be passionate about this. So they bring their own self into the assessment. And they've had to then learn to harmonise with the five pe- people in their team and before I see them, they will have practiced on each other. So they're learning this, how to bring their authentic self. They can't be a synthetic, I'll give you this answer and therefore I've won. It's actually, I have to believe in it because they actually are more rigorous questioning each other than I could ever be. In a debate, you've never seen anything like it. They, you know, they're really push and challenge. And it makes them realise that actually they are good enough. Good enough is good enough and that they are ready and they're ready to step out. So it's that authentic self in that assessment, I think, just gives them the confidence. And, and, you know, I see second language students who are thriving because they've had to practice their second language right the way throughout. They feel like they've fully contributed. Uh, You know, so everybody is really gelled into getting success from this and it doesn't mean one will win and one will lose success is they've given their best authentic self on the day dave i think i cut in before you want we're gonna say something go that's on. fine no i just amused myself just in case but that's absolutely fine um i was going to use a completely different example but then um denise was talking about debates it reminded me of something i also like roger's idea of the one cheapest but one which has always been my kind of ethos of buying things like domestic appliances you always get the cheapest but one not the cheapest but one up from it and it seems to be pretty much uh it's done all right for me so far but the the thing example i was thinking of is probably a, not that um good example in terms of reflecting on me as an interactive student-led pedagogue but more um more kind of think about debate and um students having a kind of light bulb moment which may or may not reflect well on me i team talked with a colleague in philosophy a few years ago one thing we wanted to do was model disagreement of various sorts um so we would often disagree we often disagreed anyway but we would often disagree and so we had a, a debate which didn't really f- trail that much of the students i think that we chose and we chose in the end the death penalty so he would argue against the death penalty and i would argue for it and we'd have a debate that the students would vote beforehand what their original position was and i think about 80 percent of the students were against death penalty they would have a debate and my colleague did a lot of work and preparation he had statistics he had a powerpoint he had handouts he had really good solid evidence and papers and i just made them sort of cry um by talking about their murdered mothers or whatever you know whatever um awful persuasive um marketing style apologies Roger, tools that I had at my disposal uh, in terms of emotional manipulation and persuasion and i would really lay it on really thick um and we do our debate and then um they would then vote again and i would normally convert about half those who voted against the death penalty to the death penalty and um much the annoyance of my colleague who was like this is a philosophy class how dare you not use numbers and data and evidence um well um it's about debate uh, and then that would reveal to the students that actually i didn't think this this wasn't my own belief and that was the moment that half of them at least were were just genuinely outraged that I've been able to be so vociferous and so earnest and so seemingly authentic, is that term, and for something that I completely didn't believe. Uh, so this idea that you could argue 
and you could adopt a position for the sake of argument, but literally do so and argue it, and really be successful in some terms, it kind of lit a light bulb. Maybe they saw through some of um, kind of my personality, but also I think they just saw through how arguments work, how you might take arguments on in a piece of work, in an essay or in writing, that sometimes you need to really inhabit a position in order, before you can refute it or seek to refute it. Uh, and that kind of doing a kind of mealy mouth version of your opponent's views before you dealt with them wasn't good enough. But I, just, I still remember the kind of, some of them really felt that they'd somehow been lied to or cheated. Um, and it was, you know, so it was a kind of performative thing, but it was um, it was intriguing to see also potentially how much authority they were placing in us as tutors and how much faith they had in the veracity of our comments, um, more so than we perhaps sometimes suspect, which, you know, in itself is you know, reflectively interesting for us as educators. So, yeah, I was going to use a completely different example about something positive, but that uh, talking about debates suddenly made me think about this one incident. Yeah, that that's brilliant, and I I recall one of our lecturers doing a similar, but similar but slightly different thing, where what he was doing is going uh, modeling it, but just himself, but modeling two perspectives, going from one side of the lecture uh, room to the other, and then he actually his his strategy was not to reveal what he thought, and the students were getting really impatient, and they really wanted to know what he was thinking. But he wouldn't give it away. He was mod in a sense modeling that um that that idea of not not having that individual uh, perspective or not revealing his this idea that his words shouldn't be the counting, it should be the students making up their own minds based on the evidence. So that I mean what you said, David, works on so many levels, really, really interesting. There's a couple of uh, things that David's mentioned which uh resonate. So the, the first one is um that for various reasons, because we were uh, trying to provoke the students, uh, a colleague and I who used to work together and had the rare opportunity to have the same timetabled lessons, used to go in and spend the first five minutes of a lesson arguing with one another over something that was relevant to that week. And you could see the look of confusion on the students' faces because they expected us to stand up and say, this is how it works. And we were trying to get them to see that, you know, as Denise said earlier, there are multiple points of view and you've at least got to understand, you know, other people's points of view, even if you disagree with them if you're going to try and argue against them. Uh, David, we use a slight, <laughs> intriguing that you chose the death penalty. Uh, we use slightly easier ones. So a recent marketing group uh, where we were actually talking about uh, the impact of AI. Um, so I gave them, there's an example that used with electric vehicles, which is based on the, uh, the tram car example, which I believe comes from philosophy. So you've got a tram car um, that's that's sort of running away on its own and it's, it's going to run over three people or you can divert it to only run over one person, but you would then be responsible for that one person's death and what should you do? And, and getting them to think about that and, and just think about it and then realise that in essence, that's what you're asking AI to do is to, you know, is to make those decisions for you, but somebody's still got to program it as to how it works. So, yeah, that kind of debate and that kind of getting them, I think, just to think a little bit more rather than simply absorb and then regurgitate an idea um, is, is always good, wherever the subject matter. Yeah, I, I, that's why I do it, to be honest. So I teach from a I start with uh, the positives and then go to the negatives. And then at the end of the debate, I give them 10 minutes of questioning and ask them, you know, you were given this position, 
you didn't necessarily agree, who's shifted. Um, and, and it just makes you realise how respectful and insightful students are, that they, they can shift but keep the same position. You know, they can appreciate research and data, and that helps them make decisions differently. And, and, I, and this is the whole, sometimes I think we underestimate some of the brilliance that we have in front of us. It's the whole, they, 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 we're not, and we don't want them to see us as that white coat, the, the idealist, the right answer. We want them really ready for industry. And, and that's why for me, it's like, I, I, so I'm absolutely passionate about inclusion. It's about how do we get inclusion going on in the classroom? Well, we get them to think differently. Because if we get them all to think the same, we won't end up with inclusion. It's almost an exclusive club, isn't it? And, and that's what we're all doing is trying to get them to really, really question what they're thinking. And it just shows you what universities give, doesn't it? That they would not get that necessarily in in their if, if, if they went to do an apprenticeship. Whilst I love apprenticeships, it does garner a different way of thinking. Yeah, and that's pretty interesting. I was just thinking about kind of criticality. Um, um, I think getting students in to be critical and in that sense, in terms of, of questioning is really useful, but also I think in a kind of reflective way. So we need to really provide students opportunities to think about reflection, but also to think about people with different views and the, the someone who holds views that are different to mine doesn't do so because they're an idiot normally and they hold them for, for for a set of reasons that doesn't mean that they're right i still think i'm right i wouldn't think i want a whole of you if i didn't think it was the right view i would have changed it so i still think they're wrong but i then need to come and think well what is underlying them being wrong think about persuasion and discussion and conversation and in a philosophical and ethical sense um i think you've still got to have some sense of what you need to discuss with them in order to move them in order to that. So I think, um, so yeah, um, but I think the question of AI and the trolley problem is probably going to affect more lives than the death penalty in terms of how many lives it's going to save or not save, depending on what we're programming into and the next generation of electric car, self-driving cars. Um, but ultimately, that will be, you know, will it save the driver who's paid for it? Or will it save the innocent pedestrians who it's got no stake in other than a moral one? Um, seems like kind of it's going to make a massive difference. Whereas, you know, how many cases of death penalty in the UK would we like to have as opposed to that's probably, those are probably actually more pressing ethical problems um, for students to think about and much more pressing than people think about when they think, oh, electric cars, that's great. Well, that's cool. That's interesting. Whatever, well, self-driving cars. But actually, we've got to make some quite fundamental decisions about whose whose lives count. Um, in a you know, in a potentially late capitalist economy, where some people are paying for the technology that gets to decide whose lives count, and other people aren't. And I think, so sorry, getting off from this. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's something. But I think that's really interesting, Roger. Yeah, no, I think that's. But that's yeah. It's we could also talk on that for ages and ages as well. Or maybe relatedly, uh, it I, I will just move us on to the second question, and this might come back in in different guises. So we you've shared amazing light bulb moments with students when so let's roll to our treasure islands to create more of these light bulb moments for students. So what would be a teaching prop or pedagogy that you would bring with you? in addition to the ones you mentioned before, to create this inclusive, exciting, debating, critical classroom that you've all started talking about. Is it okay for us to mention brands? Because I'm about to. Uh, 
Lego, although I actually think you could do this with a whole host of different things. Uh, Mobile have just introduced something called Mobile Pro, which is their equivalent of Lego Serious Play. Um, I've used stickle bricks. I've used plasticine. I've used clay. Um, I've worked with lots of colleagues who use lots and lots of different uh, craft materials um, like pipe cleaners and crepe paper and, and all those kinds of things. But but for me, it would be Lego. Uh, for its versatility as much as anything. So I, I've used it for icebreakers. Um, I've used it uh, sort of um, help or with students where they've been uh, developing new products. So we talked about new product development. Um, but I was first introduced to it all 16 years ago, maybe more actually, uh, by a lady called Ros Sunley at uh, Winchester, who used to run uh, these conferences, which were actually a series of micro teaching sessions. And she must have been one of the first people in the country, I think, to have done the Lego Serious Play training. Um, and she was using it in management to actually talk about, and hopefully sort of this might resonate with David, it was actually to do with philosophy, management philosophies and, and sort of quite abstract ideas. And in order to help uh, the students to be able to talk about those things, she asked them to create something that expressed an idea or an emotion or a feeling or a thought or, a, you know, something which was qu quite abstract and then talk about them. Um, and that's kind of 101 of the, the, the training that you get for the use of, of Lego Serious Play. And seeing students who might be quite uncomfortable talking about themselves, being able to build something and talk about the model because the model existed, and then actually talking quite uh, you know, detailed and comprehensive and, and often uh, you know, emotional ways about something. And for other students to actually be able to make connections because they could also see the model and the model had an impact on them, whether they, you know, they liked it or didn't like it or whatever. And then that started them on conversations because it was much easier to talk about their models than it was to talk about themselves. So yeah, mine would be Lego, definitely. Great, so we have got Lego on our boards. Anything else that you want to add or bring? Um, I mean, I, I put one thing in my kind of notes beforehand that I'm now kind of revising. This is soon becoming a pattern. Um, <coughs> excuse me, the thing that I put in my notes, which is slightly scurrilous, really, which was a kind of um, failed magician kind of approach, is blank playing cards, which are, are awful, and you, I shouldn't be allowed near them and that kind of prop. But I have used them before, mostly to stand there and do Paul Daniels impressions and things um, in front of kind of staff development sessions. But the real version I've used, slightly cheesy, but I think um, I had the most success with, was people. Of props in the sense of probably five, six years before the pandemic, using postgraduate students I'd met at conferences and elsewhere who were doing PhDs on topics to Skype into, Skype into seminars and talk to my undergraduates. So um, I was doing module time on um, unusual um, contemporary spiritualities. Um, and so I know a bit about some of them. And you know that you know it extends the borders of where you really are an expert. But I met at conferences lots of PhD students who were studying the minerals of depth, and I got in touch with them. And so when I was doing UFO religions, 
for example, which is an interesting, fascinating, sometimes very deadly topic. Um, people think about Heaven's Gate and things. And I was able to Skype in a guy from Sweden right halfway through a postgraduate work on it and had him talk about it and do a Q&A with the students in the seminar. And I think for that module, I had about six um, PhD students and postgraduate students who I was Skype into my undergraduate class from around the world. Um, and they would talk to my students. My students would have read a sample of their writing that they're doing as a pre-thing. But actually, it was it was a really interesting way to say this, to the students. I wasn't just making this, this stuff up that seemed like they really were making it up, some of it. Um, but I think having a it was really interesting because the students were all much closer in age to the two, um, the, the people I Skyped in were much closer in age to the undergraduate students. And it kind of modeled where they could be in three or four years' time if they really wanted to take some of these subjects further. Uh, and so these were serious subjects. And it was just kind of, it was an alternative voice to mine, which they were more than uh, happy about. Um, but it was, you know, as a prop, it was it was a kind of gimmick at the time. It was relatively unusual to be able to Skype somebody in remotely. But it was, other than me buying coffees for the um, people at conferences and things, it was relatively free. It really benefited the PhD students in terms of their profile and their CV. And we often did things to kind of write them references and kind of get them involved in projects. But it was a real, um, it worked really nicely. We often did little video podcast recordings of them as well that we would stick on um, the VLE, stick on Moodle as we used it, and build up as an archive of. But it was um, using other people, kind of Skyping in from elsewhere, or even colleagues in other universities that I'm doing reciprocal 10 minutes here and there, just to pop in and have a little conversation in front of the students. Um, I would say that was my kind of secret. So if, if we're stuck in our treasure desert island, um, I would hope we had a good broadband connection so we can Skype in some experts who really knew what they were talking about in some of the subjects. Really, and definitely ahead of, of the time technologically as well. Um, and we do have Wi-Fi, but purely solar paneled Wi-Fi on the island. So, yeah, that, that will be possible. <laughs> Denise? Attendee for me, it's, it's 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 as much tech as I can, if I'm absolutely honest. Being neurodiverse, for me, um, that's what levels the playing. It goes from equality to equity to inclusion because it removes any of the, the tendencies I've had not to write um, because I can speak to it. I, I It gives me access to the outside world because I, I think some of us are different types of thinkers. I'm a, I'm a big thinker, so I like to, to think globally what's happening on a global level to bring it nationally. So for me, if I didn't have tech, uh, you know, and I think it, it works for a lot of neurodiverse. I think the world becomes much too small. It becomes too insular and almost claustrophobic. So, so for me, I I love I love tech AI. You know, this ChatGPT has been absolutely a groundbreaking in in getting me very quickly into understand things without having to write uh, to read eight pages of some very dry articles. I can now get. It to do a synopsis, I can load up the, the 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 you know the article, ask it for a synopsis, ask it where its its challenges are, its weaknesses are, um, and it just starts me off. So then I think right, well I'll go and read that. That's of interest to me now. Um, whereas before I was, I, I talked to you about getting older and and neurodiversity and ma the mask is 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 taking its toll. It helps with that removing the mask. It just gives me access to so much more. And, I, and you know, I see that that's why I'm very open with all the students about me being neurodiverse. 
the the more comfortable they are about me being able to talk about autism and ADHD and and dyslexia and and how we bring it into the workplace because I'm teaching about work and management. And the more we talk about, well, actually what we can do to remove all of the barriers and bring us all in, um, I think it, it, it helps the student in the classroom. It helps them think about the student going into the workplace. And also it makes the question some of the policies and the practices that we've got going on. And it just thinks beyond today. It gets you to think way into 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. Uh, so, so for me, I, I, I almost couldn't exist without it so i need your solar panels <laughs> i'd probably be stealing yours as well david to make sure i'm fully powered <laughs> if, if it's any I, help david I'll, I'll let you use my computer david to access your people if you let me use your solar power to get to them <laughs> if, if it's any help david i would have snuck on uh blank playing cards myself i've got about 600 downstairs that i'm slowly converting into a a number of different card games for myself and colleagues so uh, I was quite excited when you said you had thought about that. Definitely second on my list. Yeah, well, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely a deal, Denise. I'm sure we can swap our kind of Wi-Fi and take turns in it. But yeah, Roger, um, the blank playing cards, I think I used them with the National Social Sciences Department for a staff development day when I made them all, filled them in, I shuffled them, and, and I shouldn't really have been allowed them because it was just too much licence to... To behave like a kind of wannabe failed magician who couldn't actually do any tricks, um, but they are, you know, things. Think I, you know, I, I think if you are willing to really invest in it, it can carry it off. Things like props that really work. The problem is when people try and do them, but they're not actually, they're not willing to go all the way in terms of the performative kind of um, signing up to it, and they kind of come off as slightly embarrassed at what they're doing. I think you need to inhabit it and have no shame in order to get away with it, which is great. I think. Brilliant. In the spirit of games, one of the things I prepared for you is uh, some previous props and pedagogies and luxury items as well, because I was going to ask, you already started doing it, how you might use each other's teaching props and pedagogies. So what I'm going to just share with you now is a wheel of names that are just customised for the purpose of today. And um, so the your task will be that I will spin the wheel and uh, see what you get. And then I'm just interested in, is there a way that you could think about using this for teaching? Uh, now let's just see if I can spin this wheel. Lego is already on it, Roger. So if, if it comes uh -huh. out that we can't choose. So Play-Doh and Glitter, I think. I've, I've previously used Play-Doh uh, with some fun of your advertising students. Uh, we were actually looking at um, window design um, so uh, uh, for retailers and also in-store displays and because they're three-dimensional um, I didn't I didn't want them to just draw something on a piece of paper um, so I actually took in some craft supplies um, I can't remember what the other thing was that I took in but I definitely took in some play-doh and they loved it and I don't know whether part of that even for for my students and there's a big age gap between me and my students but they were saying oh I remember this from school and obviously it's got a very distinctive smell and and they were moving it about and I have never seen final year students have quite so much fun um, in a classroom and I, I'm a big believer that you know fun can definitely be an aid to learning so yeah, Play-Doh is very, very good for three-dimensional things, as indeed is any other craft material. Mm -hmm. Anyone, anything else that you might, based on what each other brought to the island? So we've got Lego for play, people as props, um, uh, tech, 
Anything else that you might think, oh, we could do with that? I love stories, Tund. I, th I think mm -hmm. students love stories as well. It gives them that hook. So I tend to use a lot of either my stories because I've been uh, worked all over Europe and America um, in industry. I will bring in probably other people and use their stories. We've got, um, I do employability, so we bring in some ex ex exceptional speakers. But it's so interesting how students are, love to learn through stories. And it's probably through our storybooks from, from childhood that they have that reminiscent thing. Um, but I do think that's, that, that stories, whether people have failed or succeeded, whether, you know, it's a sad story or a happy story, it helps them just realign where they are and it's it's okay to be okay because I think the we've got so much pressure on everybody right now to be perfect to be right there's no wrong stories give us the the, the segue into do you know what I've studied high performance for years and the, the, the highest performing teams are the ones who fail together well they they learn they use it as stories to embrace so for me it would be stories as well any type of stories I like Denise's idea of tech. Uh, one of the things that came out of the uh, pandemic uh, was effectively we we had to use lots and lots of online things. Um, and I had previously used post-it notes quite a lot in my classes, but Padlet um, is a really good, quick, I mean, you can use a QR code as well as a, a, a sort of web link. Um, it's anonymized so students can participate. They can all post at the same time. Um, and it, it's a great way of dealing with questions that some students might otherwise be reluctant uh, to broach, you know, even in a small environment, certainly in a, a big lecture theatre, which is where I tend to use it most. So, yeah, definitely the tech has provided lots of advantages. I'm really interested in that because I really like Padlet, absolutely. I mean, um, as I say, I haven't used it since the pandemic, but pre-pandemic used to use it, sometimes alongside post-it notes. In I think kind of post-it notes and pencils are also tech in a slightly different kind of context. Uh, and you know, so all those things are disposal. Uh, I was I'm always controlled to reflect what we're using the tech for, what problem we're using it to solve, um, in a sense. Um because, and also I think what's interesting sometimes about technology is that it doesn't always end up getting used quite in the way that its creators, designers, or salespeople um, intended it to be used. I think it's quite interesting. Sometimes it's best, I think, the not to always tell them quite how they're meant to be using it. Um, but I, I think rather than technology in itself for students, what I'd like to see amongst them, and what I think has been really beneficial uh, that I've managed to have a bit of uh, in my life, is willingness to not to kind of break technology, to play with it, to see what can happen, to poke it with a stick, as it were, and see what to, that kind of, and it might come from a kind of generational thing of being kind of when the computers and home computers and computers in places like universities were a bit broken, we're all a bit sort of stuck together with duct tape when in order to make them do anything, you have to get the pace off. Um, and when you have to kind of repurpose things to actually make them work, gives you after a certain amount of time, you realize the worst that can happen is that someone from IT comes and shouts at you a bit um, and takes it away. You know, so actually that kind of approach to technology for students. So it isn't just students being technically competent in one thing. I think them having an attitude towards technology that is a servant of theirs and they can break it, they can push it, they can repurpose it. And I think if they have a kind of mindset or an approach around that. Um, they often much more creative than you might anticipate, and lots of my 
preconceptions, might be prejudices or biases and preconceptions we all carry with us, that might find their ways into technology. And we see how much bias has found their ways into all sorts of technology. We've talked about AI and things already a bit. Um, in all sorts of ways, the more I leave people to it, to use things, but be it like kind of old GoPros or all sorts of bits of equipment or write on top tables or post-it notes, but the students actually come up with things um, that you wouldn't think of. I think that um, it's it's very easy, not that easy, but it can be too easy to be overly prescriptive with students, I think. Sometimes they need guidance, but other times I think they you know, being left to play with things and to break them and to use a VLE in certain ways can be really liberating for students as well. So I think it's technology, but it's also a kind of, and I know Roger mentioned this word earlier, a kind of playful attitude to technology um, that is uh, that treats it for what it is rather than an over, over, um, excessive sense of reverence. Because something might be an expensive bit of technology, but in two years' time it'll be junk. So you might as well see what you can crank out of it in terms of performance or unusual use of it. Yeah, and it comes back to what Denise was saying as well, that idea of new perspectives, introducing new perspective, creating that space when things can fail, that experimentation and all sources of learning. So I, I love the idea of a bit of rebellion in the use in, in our use of of uh, as we introduce students to things, uh, like leaving things open and and let them do and it discover themselves. And, and as you say, maybe create or miscreate things that can lead to brilliant things. Okay, so what I'm going to ask, sorry, Denise, where are you going to? Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I've really um, found has found its home is teams since um, COVID as well. So I think a lot of, of students uh, have become quite introverted, shy and not quite as socially confident. Um, and I, I've always used teams, but I find teams now is really quite liberating for them. They get in touch when they want to. They share um, enough of what they want to when they want to they co-create and they you know they can edit in teams and 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 they can be offline online they could they, you know so if they're having a bad day or a good day and i found that um in the absences of them not seeing each other as much as they used to on campus i find is it's really helping them understand how there's different ways of forming friendships but other than the twitter you know the, the, their social media um, I think it's 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 recognizing the friendliness of it, the supportiveness of it. The I can help them if there's someone missing out of a team, they let me know. I can go in, and that is as really I think it builds bridges between us and the students, and it builds bridges between each other because we we wrongly assume they know each other, and, and you know when when some of the the students are on on site so little right now, it is that way of them keeping in touch. Um, in an in a nice safe environment rather than this very random I don't know you uh, we're introducing them to each other so so I like the the newer softwares which are more I think uh, it puts them in a little nest if you like it's their safe nest it's their grouping and they're okay with that uh, so I so I I quite like some of the new tech that's coming along that lets them mm. be groups and friendship groups and social groups and they can set it up outside of me so I find quite a lot I give them a team they go and create their own team as well and I get invited to that I think it's quite funny the whole come and join us and, and, and then they're trying mm. to drag me into multiple teams so uh, I, I think the tech that we're developing now is definitely more um, inclusive and supportive at the same time as challenging. 
That's brilliant. And you can probably follow it up with loads of analogies around the treasure islands of, of students creating their own spaces and all own islands and then inviting you to it. But at the same time, this porousness of the islands connecting to each other. And yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really nice. Um, it's lovely. And that yeah. some of them exclude me. Some of them, they've got their own team. And then when they're ready to share with me, they'll take something from there and they'll put it into the team I can see. And that gives them, that shows they're autonomous, they're confident. Mm -hmm. I, I just like that thing about we're all in it together. We're all at different stages as well. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Great. OK, so you've all been working hard. You're wearing masks and getting exhausted with working. So let's focus on, on, on relaxing. So when you're on this island in a little corner, when you can be yourself without behaving in any particular way, others may want to. What would be your luxury item that you would you would bring with you? An MP3 player. Mm -hmm. um, as much as I, I love books, um, and I do love books, I've always got at least one book on the go. Um, the pure physical constraints of how many books you can probably take with you in a in a suitcase um, would mean I, I, I'd take um, an MP3 player um, and hopefully then have through the tech that my uh, two fellow uh, Treasure Islanders have brought with them uh, access to download uh, stuff to it. So I, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. Um, it's one of the things that got me interested in in podcasting because I have a three and a half hour round trip from where I live to where I work um, on the days when I have to go in. Um, but it's also meant that I've listened to lots of programs about science, history, geography, um, philosophy, uh, that I might not otherwise have, have listened to. And once you find a podcast that you really like, and then generally speaking, there's loads of episodes available that that could be really interesting and the, the one I'd, I'd really like to tip my cap at um is something called uh we have ways uh, which is al murray who's probably better known as the pub landlord and james holland who's an historian al murray himself studied history um and they talk about the second world war and and apart from the you know amazing horrific and and you know uh, really unbelievable things that happen sometimes there's also actually a, an awful lot of things that you can you can learn from that that change your perception not just of of war as a you know an attritional thing between uh countries but also of how people work together and the, and the things that people can achieve when they do um work together so yeah that, that would be mine an, an mp3 player thank you I mean, I'm happy to go next to them, which was, I mean, I think what I wrote down, which I'll, I'll stick with is, I think uh, a number of bikes would be important. I don't think that one bike is a luxury. That's a necessity for all human beings. <laughs> but multiple bikes might be seen as a luxury. I mean, yes, we can use one of them to power the Wi-Fi um, anyway. So I think it's, it's useful. But I mean, I would draw that in terms of for um, thinking about work versus um, downtime from work um, in that, uh, I think one of the most powerful ways to be, not be stressed is to do physical exercise. I think cycling is relatively low impact and is a good good way to do that. Um, and also, if you get some nice bone conduction headphones, you can listen to podcasts while you're doing it without getting, hopefully, without on this the treasure island, there won't be any um, massive buses That's or it. trucks to, to <laughs> weigh you down. But anyway, if you get the right headphones, you can probably listen out for those. Um, of the next arriving set of people on the island won't kind of uh, knock you over. So I would think something like a bike or a row machine or something i think you need to you know that kind of mind body they only get overly kind of um 
bold in asserting anything about kind of holistic claims of that sort. But nonetheless, I think being on the island, if we didn't have to do too much physical work, um, and if all was provided for us, as I'm presuming, um, then you would be you would need to be you would need to become physically exhausted you know, as well as mentally exhausted in order to be a kind of um a rounded person or to, for many people to feel that they were a kind of um effectively functioning person so i think something that allowed the bites would be ideal or some kind of um inferior alternative like a row machine or something mm -hmm. would also do mm -hmm. great thank you Denise. And assuming I have my my laptop so I can be as curious and escape if I want to get my solutions of my laptop, I think mine would be family and the dog. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's for me is is that whole they my small community. That's that's so important to me that I I that's how I operate. So they're okay, I'm okay. If I've got the dog, the kids, the my husband, that's that's our unit. Um and, and they haven't got to be with me all the time, but it's that thing about what is it? Where do I belong? And that's where I belong. And that's how I function better. If if my sense of belonging is good, I can do almost it's that whole superhuman. I can do whatever I want without that. I think I would I'd really struggle. So I'd be kidnapping, kidnapping my, my, my family and the dog and, and, and bringing them <laughs> with me, I think. Yeah, I think we might like I think we have managed to get other people get away with uh, animate um, objects as in not objects. Denise, so he might be able to get away with that too. Um, I, I had assumed as it was a treasure island rather than a desert island that uh, we wouldn't necessarily have to be stuck on there forever. And and uh, David, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. My chair is currently over the top of my rowing machine. There's a cycle machine next to me. And uh, after immediately after this podcast, uh, podcast that I should be going out, listening to my podcast whilst going on a brisk walk. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people forget how important physical health is, especially in relation to mental health. Yeah, and it's very topical, obviously, with students as well. So um, I know our campus has changed with lots more sport opportunities inside, outside sports centres. So uh, definitely important. OK, any final words? Any other luxuries to take with us? But I think it seems like we've got sorted, we've got the family, we've got exercise, we've got nice music and relaxing things. So I'm sure we will have a great time there with very creative, curious students who all feel included. So let's thank you so much for the discussion. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, um, I will be very happy listening back because there's so many things that you said that is worth unpacking still. But um, this is it from now. It's time to sail away to our treasure islands together. Thank you very much for our audience to, for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in becoming a guest, you can find our expression of interest on our Liverpool Uni CIE podcast website, where you can also access previous blogs uh, and episodes. So goodbye for now. And finally, a big thank you to our guest today. Thank you, Tindy. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you.